0: With gold. Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want Nothing but
1: the thought of you, I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Standing with me is my co-host, Sedalia. She's a local girl right here in Rose Park. She has a million sisters. She goes uh, to school and she sometimes there's a boy that she secretly would like to wink at but her mother would kill you. is that right? Yes. Yes. So that boy, I hope you're watching. You better know the Lord. If he doesn't, do you have any interest in him at all? No. None at all, right? That's right, and you're going to wait till you're how old, till you date? 20, 28. 28. 28? 30, Mom says.
0: You're already 31.
1: <laughs> you had many boyfriends before. They're getting livelier and livelier as time goes on. Sedalia, is there a message you have for the audience? I love Jesus. Excellent, and very emphatically said. Thank you, Sedalia, for coming on the show. You Jump on down. All right. We've got a lot to cover tonight, so if you're a caller, make sure you're on your game. We're going to pass you by we prefer LDS callers of course we've had a tremendous past few weeks uh, burning heart our sixth annual occurred an open water baptism that was last Saturday evening we uh, have prepared a brief um, retrospect for you so take it away <laughs>
0: So make your sirens call and sing all you want I will not hear what you have to say Cause I need freedom now And I need to know how to live my life as it's meant to be
1: time that night. Uh, We missed you if you weren't there, but understand. And it was an honor to be able to baptize uh, those people who wanted to publicly uh, give their lives uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by being baptized. Um, We also had our annual partners banquet on Friday night. Now, some of you don't know what this is. Uh, Our partners are people who commit to contributing $84 or more a month to the ministry. These stable contributions help us plan for the future of the ministry and to meet our monthly expenditures. Now, listen closely. Everybody, uh, everything everybody does helps, my friends. Uh, You can pray for us. If that's what you do, please uh, pray. Uh, You can tell people about the ministry. If that's what you can do, do it. And if you've been helping us out with other donations, please continue. Everything matters. However... If you're in a position to prayerfully uh, partner with us, uh, you might consider it. This consistency uh, helps us uh, when it comes to paying our uh, and managing our monthly obligations, etc. So take a look at what the Partners Program is all about. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is part of the matter done, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McGeey. If you, if you have a in this about the matter on television. When Christians know.
0: years old and I am from Sean's second best friend in the world, that is Sweden. Hi Sean, and everyone else there at Lakeview Ministries. This is Philip Mark Trevor calling from Bracknell, a uh, town just outside London. I'm a former LBS as a call it, managing. And um, I joined the London Church when I was 16 years old, um, thinking that I was doing uh, the right thing. After many years in the Roman Church, I realized that the Jesus I was following uh, was a different one. And I, uh, I find out that uh, I was far away from Him. Um, but thanks to Heart of the Matter, I discovered the real Jesus. A Jesus that uh, uh, saves us by grace. And God has really blessed me through Olathean Ministries to help me understand God's work, how to see things from a new Christian perspective, uh, mostly from Heart of the Matter, but also from his two books, and uh, also how I can share the good news of Jesus with Latter-day Saints. And I want to say uh, how much of a blessing, a real blessing, that Heart of the Matter has been to me as a a Christian who wants to reach out to people of of other beliefs. I started to trust the Bible again, I started to trust Jesus and,
1: uh, and God.
0: I just want to say thank you very much for all your hard work you've been doing, you're watching the show since uh, 2008 and I uh, love it, I love it every, every week I tune in to see the archives. I just want to say thank you Sean for doing this, for doing what you're doing, please keep doing it because. change a lot of of people. And hey, continue doing what you're doing. It's a great job. Sean McCraney, or my Faja, always loved me. I know he shared uh, my story with his ministry and those that followed him and from that came a lot of prayer for me. And from those prayers, somehow along the way I came to know God. I came to understand that I need Christ as my savior fully every day, every second. I praise him for my dad and his ministry and all those prayers.
1: So that's partners. Listen carefully. Really hear me now. If you are um, a widow or a single parent, or a family struggling financially, or if you are on a limited budget, never send us a dime. We we mean that fully. Your prayers are gonna be far more beneficial, and the Lord does not want you sending in funds that you need to survive upon. That's not what this is about. It's not a petition for people who are struggling to eke out something to give, that's not it. Your prayers, your sharing the show, all those things are just as important the partner's thing is really for people who are in a position and who the Lord says you help. That is who it's for and that, that alone. And if the Lord doesn't tell anybody to, he doesn't. It's okay. So don't take this as this hardcore uh, pressure thing. That's not what it's about. And if you are somebody who's struggling financially, it, we, we just don't believe the Lord would want you to do that. So don't. Okay? How about a moment from the word? In this segment, we uh, share the differences between what the Bible says and what the LDS say uh, in loose reading through the Bible. We're in Matthew chapter 22. And at verse 23 of chapter 22, the Sadducees came to Jesus to see if they could tangle him up in his words. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So these men came to Jesus and using a practice Moses instituted regarding marriage, they brought it up to see if they could trip Jesus up in his... Uh, uh, theology, so this is what it says. The same day came Jesus to Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife deceased and having no issue, meaning no children, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. So what that is saying is, uh, you're not seeing me, but it's okay, is that there were seven brothers, and the first one married a woman, and he didn't have any children with her, and he died. And so the next one married uh, the the woman to, to bring forth children, and then he died, and it passed down to all seven. And then they get to the point of it, verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, they asked Jesus, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. So remember, they don't believe in the resurrection, and they say, So in the resurrection, Jesus, Jesus answered and said to them, You do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Okay, Now, we all know that one of the draws the Mormon missionaries used to entice unlearned people into Mormonism is to tell them that marriage continues on in heaven, including uh, eternal sexual relations and the family unit. Of course, the missionaries add the only way this is possible for a couple to stay together eternally is if they enter into an LDS temple uh, because every other marriage ends at death. But what does Jesus say here? He says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now, if you pull this passage out and use it on the LDS missionaries, they'll they'll often say things like, Well, of course Jesus was speaking the truth. In or during the resurrection, there will be no marriages performed. Therefore, you have to be sealed while you're on earth in an LDS temple to obtain your eternal marriage. I can't believe the stuff these guys come up with. Jesus' teaching is plain. In the Luke chapter 20 account of the story, Jesus also says, listen, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world, talking about the future world, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. So in the end, Jesus makes the doctrine of marriage after this life, among other things, perfectly clear to the Sadducees. First, he delineates between his kingdom and the kingdom of this world, and uh, in answering these Sadducees, he makes it clear that these are the two kingdoms to be considered. Then he adds that it is the children of this world who marry and are given in marriage. Meaning that in that world, or the world to come, they're, we're not involved in that kind of thing. All this means is that while we're in bodies of flesh and blood as children of this world, We we will be having relations with our spouses and we'll be bearing children and therefore we will marry according to God's law. This is why God gave us marriage, to sustain an orderly and functional way to bring children into this world and care for them. But then Jesus makes it clear what those who follow him will be like, saying, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world And the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die anymore for they are equal unto the angels and the children of God being the children of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus makes makes three facts perfectly clear to these questioning Sadducees. One, there is a resurrection. Okay, that's his first point. Two, marriage nor marriages exist in this resurrected state. And three, there is such a thing as angels, because those who are worthy to obtain his kingdom will be, Jesus said, equal unto them. In Joseph's twistianity, one of the things he did was sell people on the non-biblical utopian idea of heaven. And he took earth life, and he applied it to heaven, and he took heavenly themes, and he applied it here to earth. In doing so, he took marriage and made it one of the preeminent ideals of this life and the life to come. It's just not so. So people, once again, have to decide, am I going to believe Jesus or am I going to believe Joseph? This does not mean you won't be with your spouse uh, who you're with on this earth and maybe even a better way in heaven. But in terms of earthly marriage, Jesus says, "Not uh, not in the resurrection given or during. All right. So with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we seek you and all things need you as we uh, are together here, our audience members, live in television land, our volunteers, people who help the ministry, people who pray for the ministry, Lord, be with me as I speak. Uh, If we take phone calls, that we'll be able to address their questions and concerns and do your will in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna wrap up the First Vision account tonight in doing so, I'm gonna deliver a, a summary of things that we have covered and including information you haven't heard before. Remember, though we're in the midst of studying the Book of Mormon, uh, the topic of the first bi- vision is important because once everything is examined, you will discover there was no first vision as the, as the Mormons refer to it. And the actual first vision of Mormonism was Joseph saying an angel came and told him where plates were. So let me preface this wrap-up with 30-plus facts. Excuse the redundancies. First, though Joseph Smith was and Mormonism today claim he was visited by God the Father and Jesus the Son in the year of 1820, when Joseph was just 14 years old, We have proven on a number of accounts that this cannot be true and that the first vision of anything recorded started in 1823. Next, we have proven according to records and documents that the heavenly visitor Joseph claimed to see in 1823 was not God the Father nor his son, but rather an angel. And the early church leaders all the way up until the late 1800s believed the first vision was one of an angel visiting Joseph, not deity. Finally, we've proven that the official LDS story Mormons tell today of a first vision happening in 1820 was never mentioned until at least 12 years after the fact and that this story evolved over time in many different ways until finally it arrives at what the missionaries talk about today. Let me say something very bold here. Based on the study of the first vision alone in Mormonism, It's one gigantic fraud. You don't need to step beyond the first vision to see it's a fraud. Don't need to talk about the Book of Mormon. Don't need to talk about visiting angels. Don't need to talk about uh, their word of wisdom, their good lifestyle, their good works, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. Don't need to talk about grace versus works, Sabbath day, tithing, nothing. Just the first vision. If you study it, you will see it's a big con. Read Grant Palmer's book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, you don't believe me. Go to w- uh, www.utlm.org if you don't believe me. Okay, but you want proof? Let's go through it. Joseph either wrote or dictated several versions of the First Vision story, a minimum, of, again, of 12 years after the supposed event. Uh, additionally, he, was told the, uh, he told the story to other LDS people who then published what they heard. Taking all of these accounts together, let me give you a laundry list of the facts that are recorded. First, Joseph said that the first vision occurred in a grove of trees near his home. Second, he said that he was about 12 when he became interested in religion and distressed over his personal sins. Third, he said he studied the Bible and attended church, but the accounts differ as to whether he decided on his own that there was no existing true religion or whether the idea that all churches were false had not entered his heart until he experienced the vision. For during the period of religious concern, Joseph decided to turn to God in prayer. This is all from his accounts. An early account says the purpose of his prayer was to ask God for mercy for his sins while later accounts emphasize his desire to know which church he should join. Nevertheless, just as his mother had done years before when she was concerned about religious questions, Joseph said he went one spring morning to a secluded grove near his home to pray. He said he went to a stump in a clearing where he had left his ax the day before and began to offer his first ever audible prayer. He said his prayer was interrupted by, quote, a being from an unseen world, more powerful than any he had previously encountered. He said the spirit caused his tongue to swell in his mouth so that he could not speak. One account said he heard a noise behind him, something like someone walking towards him. And then when he tried to pray again, the noise grew louder, causing him to spring to his feet, look around, but he saw no one. In some of the accounts, he described being covered with a thick darkness and thinking that he would be destroyed. At his darkest moment, he knelt a third time to pray and as he summoned all of his powers to do this, he felt ready to sink into oblivion. At that moment, he said his tongue was loosed and he saw a vision. Smith said he saw a pillar of light brighter than noonday sun that slowly descended on him, growing in brightness as it descended and lighting the entire area for some distance. As the light reached the treetops, Smith feared the trees might catch fire, that's quote. But he reached the ground, but when it reached the ground and enveloped him, it produced, quote, peculiar sensations, end quote. He said, quote, his mind was caught away from the natural objects which he was surrounded and he was enwrapped in a heavenly vision, end quote. While experiencing the vision, he said he saw one or more personages which he described differently in the various accounts. In one version, Smith said he saw, quote, the Lord. In his diary entries, he said he saw, quote, visitations of angels and a vision of angels, quote one which included, quote, a personage, and then, quote, another personage who testified that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, another said there were many angels, end quote. In his later account, Smith began to consistently report that he had seen two personages who appeared, quote, one after the other, end quote. In another account, he said, quote, these personages exactly resembled each other in their features and likenesses. That's as his vision continued to grow. In another, he said later on, the first personage had light complexion, blue eyes, and a piece of white cloth drawn over his shoulder, his right arm bare. End quote. Also later accounts, uh, one of the personages called Smith by name and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, hear him. Also, Smith left their identity unexplained. Most Latter-day Saints infer that these personages were God the Father and Jesus Christ. In two accounts, Smith said that the Lord told him, quote, his sins were forgiven, that, quote, he should obey the commandments, and, quote, the world was corrupt, and finally, quote, that the second coming was approaching. Later accounts said that when the personages appeared, Smith asked them, quote, O Lord, what church shall I join? or, quote, must I join the Methodist church? In response, he was told that, quote, all religious denominations were believing in incorrect doctrines, that none of them was acknowledged of God as his church and kingdom, end quote. He was also told that all churches and their professors were corrupt and all creeds were an abomination in his sight, In one account, Smith was told not to join any of the churches, but that the, quote, fullness of the gospel would be known to him at a later time. And finally, after the vision withdrew, Smith said he, quote, came to himself and found himself sprawled on his back. Now, in the canonized and official version of the first vision, which wasn't published until 1842, 22 years after it happened, Joseph's family decision to join the Presbyterian church is said to have occurred prior to the first vision. But Lucy Max Smith, Joseph's mother, said that she and some of her children sought comfort in the church after the death of her oldest son, Alvin, which happened in November of 1823. So what we have is a gap of three years, bottom line, all this said and done when it comes to the chronology that says Joseph's story and the missionary today's story And the Temple Square story of an 1820 Joseph Smith was a 14-year-old boy is complete bull. Anything that happened, happened three years later. There's little evidence that Smith discussed the first vision publicly prior to 1830. That's when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the Church, was established. Even Mormon historian James B. Allen says, this is a quote, None of the available contemporary writings about Joseph Smith in the 1830s, none of the publications of the church in that decade, and no contemporary journal or correspondence yet discovered mentions the story of the first vision. Some say that Smith made reference to the vision in 1820 to his mother, telling her uh, the day it happened that he had, quote, learned for himself that Presbyterianism is not true. But his mother, Lucy, did not mention this conversation in her memoirs. In the oldest full, known full account of the first vision, Joseph Smith Jr. said he, quote, could find None that would believe his experience and that shortly after the experience, he told the story of the revelation to a Methodist minister who responded, quote, with great contempt, saying it was all of the devil that there was no such thing as visions or revelations in these days and all such things had ceased with the apostles and there that there should never be any more like them, end quote. He also said that the telling of his vision story back when he was 14, quote, excited a great deal of prejudice against me among professors of religion and was the cause of great persecution, which continued to increase, quote, Again, no evidence from 1830 backward of any of this persecution beyond Smith's own testimony. And remember, none of the earliest anti-Mormon writings against Mormonism, which which critiqued the angel Moroni and the gold plates in the Book of Mormon, no anti-Mormon writer critiqued the first vision at all. Nobody, because it wasn't true. In June of 1830, Smith provided the first clear record of a significant personal religious experience prior to the visit of the angel Moroni. So 10 years after he, uh, 1820, Joseph comes up with uh, talking about his first personal experience before the coming of the angel Moroni. And what did he say it was? He said that he learned he had a remission of his sins and that he then later became entangled with the vanities of the world. It said nothing about the father and the son visiting him in a first vision in 1820. So in 1830, Joseph Smith had the opportunity, now that the church was started, to say, listen, when I was 14 in 1820, God the Father appeared to me, and this is what happened. Does he say that in regarding his early spiritual experiences? No. He says he just learned that he had received a remission of his sins and that uh, he fell back into the world after having learned that. Okay, the earliest existing account of the first vision was handwritten by Joseph Smith in 1832. Interestingly, it was not published until 1965. This is what it says, it's on your screen, I hope. The Lord heard my cry in the wilderness while in the attitude of calling upon the Lord in in the 16th year of my age, a pillar of fire light above the brightness of the sun at noon day, come down from above and rested upon me. And I was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord opened the heavens upon me and I saw the Lord and he spake unto me saying, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in thy statutes and keep the commandments. Behold, I am the Lord, the glory. I was crucified for the world and all those things who believe in my name may have eternal life. Behold, the world lieth in sin and at this time, a none doeth good, no, not one. They have turned aside from the gospel and keep not my commandments. They draw near to me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and mine anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth to visit them according to their ungodliness and to bring to pass that which hath been spoken by the mouth of the prophets and apostles. Behold, and lo, I come quickly as it is written of me in the cloud, clothed in the glory of my Father. There is the first official written account of joseph's first vision you know what it was it was a recitation of scriptures that the guy knew he had studied the bible he recited scripture put him in jesus mouth you notice it says the lord it doesn't say i saw the father and he says this is my beloved son and he was in a body uh, as tangible as man's uh, flesh and none of that stuff of this first vision that's so important to the mormons today Unlike Smith's later accounts of the vision, the 1830 account emphasizes personal forgiveness of sin and mentions neither an appearance of God the Father nor the phrase, this is my beloved son. In this account, Smith also stated that before he experienced the first vision, his own search of scriptures had led him to conclude that mankind had apostatized from the true and living faith and there was no society or denomination Uh, that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament, that's end quote. So that was the first vision account. Then in 1834, Oliver Cowdery wrote an early biography of Joseph Smith, which was printed in several parts of an LDS periodical at the time. In one issue, Cowdery explained that Smith was, quote, confused by the different religions and local revivals, end quote, during his 15th year, leading him to wonder which church was true. So this is the preface that Cowdery gives in the official first history of the church. In the next issue of the published biography, Cowdery, Cowdery explains that the reference to Smith's 15 year was a typographical error and actually the revivals and religious confusion took place in Smith's 17th year which was 1823. So even according to Cowdery, it was religious confusion that led Smith to pray in his bedroom late in September of 1823, and he also wanted to know while he prayed in his bedroom if a supreme being did exist. Cowdery wrote that, quote, in response, an angel appeared and granted Joseph forgiveness of his sins, and the remainder of the story roughly parallels Smith's later description of the visit by the angel Moroni. So even in the first official history, which Joseph Smith helped Oliver Cowdery write 14 years after the supposed First Vision, all they describe is the Angel Moroni experience. No 1820, no 14 years old, no Sacred Grove, no God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's the second account. Then on November 9th of 1835, Smith uh, dictated an account of the First Vision in his diary after telling it to a stranger. He reported in his diary that because he was perplexed about religious matters, he had gone to a grove to pray and that his tongue seemed swollen in his mouth and that he had been interrupted twice by the sound of someone walking behind him. Finally, as he prayed, he said his tongue was loosed. He saw a pillar of fire in which an, an unidentified personage appears. Then another unidentified personage told Smith his sins were forgiven and testified unto Smith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He also included in some notes on that page, and I saw many angels that day too. Uh, uh, Smith said this vision occurred when he was 14, and that when he was 17, he then saw another vision of angels in the night after he retired to his bed. So uh, let me tell you, that's, the, that's his personal account in a diary, and all he says is he saw one person disappear, another person disappear, and what they say? Your sins are forgiven you, and, and Jesus is the Christ. Doesn't say it was God the Father, doesn't say it was Jesus, and just says two personages, okay? So the, keep adding this stuff up. Then we have, uh, that's the third account. A few days later, November 14th, 1835, he tells another visitor, uh, the story, and in his own journal, Smith said that he had to recite the story up until the time I received the first visitation of angels. This is Smith's own handwriting that he received, that he recited to this man up to the first visitation of angels, uh, which happened when I was about 14 years old. His own hand is telling us these accounts, and it's telling us the story as it supposedly is growing and being fabricated. Then in 1838, Joseph began dictating early church history again. This history is the one that the church uses today. It took him 18 years to figure out what the timeline was, what to include in this, and now he start because now he's been studying uh, Hebrew. He's been talking to all kinds of people who are into different fields of religion. He's been learning about Egyptology, and now suddenly God is becoming a man to him. You see, when he started off, it was Christianity through and through. Now God is becoming a man, and so his 1838 account of the first vision includes God the Father standing above him in a body as tangible as man, flesh and bones. Okay, so that is the progress of this thing called the first vision. It's called the canonized version now because it was uh, subsequently included in the Pearl of Great Price as their official version. In that uh, thing, so that's the fourth vision. I'm not gonna include the fifth version because uh, it's a third party to Smith, so it's not as reliable. It was written in September of 1840 by Orson Pratt in, in, and published in England. Then in ni- 1842, two years before his death by gunfight, Smith himself wrote a letter to John Wentworth editor of Chicago Democrat, analyzing the basic beliefs of the Latter-day Saint movement. In it, he included a sixth account of the first vision. Here, he said he had been about 14 years of age when he had received the vision, and he said that his mind was taken away from the objects that he was surrounded. He was wrapped in heavenly vision. He saw two glorious personages who exactly resembled each other in features and likeness, surrounded with the brilliant light which eclipsed the uh, sun at noonday. He said that he was told that no religious denomination was acknowledged of God as the church and kingdom and that he was expressly commanded not to go after them. Even in this account, nothing of God the Father in a body of flesh and bud, uh, bones. As we will see in programs to come, after this supposed first vision, Joseph Smith joined a church. He was, according to him, he was told, don't join these churches, they're all corrupt. Joseph joined a church, it's documented. So how important was these uh, angels or God, how important were those words to this guy that he says he received, that they were all corrupt, and to join none of them? It wasn't very important because he joined. Finally, years later, Joseph's brother William uh, provided two accounts of the First Vision, but these two are third parties, so I'm not going to cover them here. Like the First Vision account itself, listen to this, the importance of the First Vision within the LDS movement evolved over time. Early Mormons, as I said, were unaware of the details of the Vision until as late as 1840, when the earliest accounts were published in Great Britain. A published account of the first vision was not available in the United States until 1842, shortly before Joseph Smith's death. Jan Shipps, non-Mormon LDS Mormon scholar, says that the vision was practically unknown until the account was published in 1842. So for the first 22 years of Mormonism, nobody knew Joseph saw God the Father and Jesus Christ. Interestingly, even the uh, canonical First Vision story used by Mormon missionaries today was not used in sermons uh, that Brigham Young and then his uh, predecessor, uh, his successor, John Taylor. In their sermons, Brigham Young nor John Taylor never referenced the uh, First Vision. Even Hugh Nibley, LDS intellect, now dead, uh, has said that Brigham Young's favorite themes was to talk about the tangible, personal nature of God, and yet he never, quote, never illustrated the theme of in, by any mention of the first vision. When John Taylor discussed the origins of Mormonism in 1863, he did so without alluding to the First Vision story. And then all the way back, all the way out to 1879, John Taylor referred to Joseph Smith having the angel tell him that all the sects were incorrect. Three non-Mormon students of Mormonism, Douglas Davies, Kurt Windmer, and Jan ships all agree that the LDS emphasis on the First Vision was a late development only gaining an influential status in the 19th century. Mormon historian James B. Allen also argues that the first vision, quote, did not figure prominently in any evangelistic efforts by the church until the 1880s. This is like saying that the preaching of Jesus Christ died resurrected wasn't done by the apostles for the first 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. That's what it's like, that's what it's saying. That Jesus died, he resurrected, and the apostles never talked about it until 50 years later. That's exactly what it's, it's, it's like they're saying. Even the first LDS hymn about the first vision. Oh, how lovely was the morning, gracious beams, the son of God. That! was not written until 1884, 65 years after the First Vision. The myth was so inconsequential. It seems, according to scholar Kurt Widner, that it was uh, primarily through the post-1883 sermons of LDS Apostle George Q. Cannon that the modern interpretation and significance of the First Vision in Mormonism began to take shape. Ships wrote, quote, when the first generation of leadership died off, leaving the community to be guided mainly by men who had not known Joseph Smith, the first vision emerged as a symbol that could keep the slain Mormon leader at center stage." End quote. She adds, quote, the centennial anniversary of the first vision in 1920 was a far cry from the almost total lack of reference to it just 50 years before. But it appears that LDS Church President Joseph F. Smith is to be credited with having fully raised the First Vision to its modern status and to be a pillar in Mormon community. Largely through Joseph F. Smith's 20th century influence, the 1838 account that Joseph produced of the First Vision was included in the Pearl of Great Price. It seems that after plural marriage ended at the turn of the 20th century... The first vision was promoted heavily by Joseph F. Smith, and it soon replaced polygamy in the mind of believers as the main defining element of Mormonism. At one time, it was, we're polygamists. It's an eternal principle. We're polygamists. That was their defining thing, and everyone hated them because of it. When polygamy ended, they needed something else. Guess what it became? The first vision, reconstructed. So after 15 years of not being know, 50 years of not being known, five or six contradictory rewritten versions of an event that never happened, this first vision became fundamental to the present day faith. Today, an official website for the Mormon church calls the first vision, quote, the greatest event in world history since the birth, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, thanks for giving Jesus a little credit there. The guys like... Former LDS prophet Gordon B. Hinckley, in January of 2007, uh, in an interview conducted by PBS for their documentary, The Mormons, this is what Hinckley said of the first vision. Quote, it's either true or false. False. It's If it's false, we're engaged in a great fraud. If it's true, it's the most important thing in the world. That's our claim. That's where we stand. That's where we fall if we fall, but we don't. We just stand secure in that faith. It's not faith, it's bad faith. Because every single sign says it didn't happen. And you are following a myth if you actually believe it did. Let's open up phone lines, eight zero one nine seven three tv 20 801 8820 We went along uh, tonight, but we had to. Listen, we have uh, Glenn from Spanish Fork Says he's LDS. Let's find out. Glenn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh,
0: Yes, Uh, I was just wondering, uh, you know, if something is false, I was just kind of wondering, if something is false, does that mean it's sin? And if uh, if it's not sin, how should I approach the issue in question?
1: Uh, Well, you know, sin, I don't know if it's sin. You know, Tide, uh, laundry detergent could say removes all stains, and if it doesn't, is it a sin? Well, it might be a sin on the advertisement agency, but is it a sin that Tide doesn't remove the stain? I'm not sure. But in something like this, it's certainly a sin. Because in something religious where people are saying God said this and God didn't say that, that is certainly sin, and I would approach it very seriously.
0: Well, that's kind of interesting, and, and the reason why I was thinking this and wanted to ask you this question is because somebody approached me with the question the other day, and they said, let's, let's t- uh, use this as an example, and they were saying, well, let's say, for example, that you are blind, and I tell you that the sky is purple, but I know that it's uh, really blue. Then if I, if, am I wrong in believing that the sky is purple if I'm a blind man being told that by somebody who, could, who knows that it's a blue sky?
1: No, I, I would think that's not a sin on your part. I would think it would be naivete if you walked around believing somebody, single account, that told you the sky's purple. I think the blind man could get out of encyclopedias and read the braille and s- see hey, it's blue, it's blue, it's blue. Scientists, hey, hey, you over at MIT, what color is this guy? Well, it's blue, you idiot. And he gets all kinds of facts. If he then continues to believe that it's purple, then maybe it is a sin in that guy's mind. You see, but we go into facts, we find out what they are, and then we decide if we're going to believe the lie or the truth. Does that help?
0: That's pretty good. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Thanks for uh, answering my question. I was just wondering that because, you know, I I was wondering how how to, you know, correctly approach Mormonism in that that type of mindset.
1: Keep going, my friend. It's going to work out well. Keep going. Keep searching the truth. God will help you. All right. All right, my friend. Thanks. They're having a sale at Smith's right now, by the way, and it's phenomenal. Uh, Listen, I pray God is with me now on this. On the front page of the uh, Salt Lake Trib, Wednesday, August 31st, it says, this is a uh, story by Peggy Fletcher Stack, who I believe stacks the cards in the favor of the LDS Church with every one of her articles. But it says, gay Mormon named to key post. The byline says, Hope is he can bridge gap between LDS gay community. And so what it does is it goes and it tells a story that there is an openly a gay man who has been placed in, um, it's the bishopric, but it's not one of the three. He's the uh, ward uh, uh, executive secretary. He's an openly admitted gay man. He stands up in, in church and says, this is how God created me. He is happy with the way he has created me, okay? And in that ward, he is allowed to uh, receive this calling and serve in this calling. Why? Because he does not, he broke up with his lover, longtime lover, which was the hardest thing he's ever done, he said, and it says he does not act on his gayness, That in the Mormon church makes him worthy just like it would make a heterosexual person worthy to participate in callings as long as that heterosexual person is not engaging in the sexual acts of their desires until, of course, marriage. So what we have here is front page Salt Lake Trib, APs could pick it up. They are vying for position in any vote they can get and they're trying to clean up their image among the gay uh, community because of what happened with Prop 8, but they have painted themselves in a corner. In my opinion, you see, to the Christian community or a, a sound, wise pastor or a, a Christian, he would tell a gay man, "Come to the Lord. Do you believe in the Lord? Come to church. You do. You take your communion. You pray. You sing with us. You do things that you can do in this ward, and you work on your gayness uh, with the Lord." The gay, being uh, uh, actively homosexual is a sin. You work on it with the Lord, okay? But the Mormon church says you can be gay out in the open and admit it and, 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 and everything else and even be attracted to people in your ward and stuff as long as you don't commit the act of homosexuality, the acts of homosexuality. So I would say to the LDS church, if this is the case, you need to, to be fair to the homosexual community, to start holding stake dances for gays. Because they're not having sex. They're doing what a heterosexual couple does. They dance together, they go on dates together. A homosexual com- uh, person in, who's an LDS who can hold a calling and doesn't have sex is the same as a heterosexual person according to your article. Then you should be, uh, you should be catering to them and their lifestyle and activity in your wards and in your church. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Someone call and tell me I'm wrong, because their precedent seems to say I'm right, okay? So do you get to see the difference between the two? They are saying homosexuality is okay, you just don't get to act on it. Christians say homosexuality is not okay, but take it to the Lord and he'll help you get through it. Okay, I hope that's taken in the spirit with which it's given. Okay, somebody on the screen's asking, are you familiar with the book of Hebrews? Yes, I am. Uh, Yes, we are going to do a whole bunch in the book of Hebrews when we get into the text of the uh, book of Mormon, but we just haven't gotten to that yet. Uh, Second, an op-ed piece from Thomas Alexander, a BYU professor uh, emeritus he writes that Mormons are Christian because they believe in and try to practice New Testament Christianity. This is kind of a phrase that I'm seeing bantered abound by the LDS Church in order to be seen as Christian. They practice New Testament Christianity. Uh, And uh, and then he adds, and some aspects of Old Testament Christianity. Uh, And then he, I can't even address it. If you read it, I'm just trying to say Thomas Alexander, I invite you on the show, Thomas. I invite you to come on the show as a representative who's willing to write the Salt Lake Tribune publicly, and I uh, invite you to talk about these things with us. So I've got you invited. I've got the founder of uh, FAIRS invited who won't respond and come on the show. We've got, of course, Thomas Monson and all the 12 and the general authorities, any stake president, any bishop, invited, invited, invited. Phone's not ringing! Come on, let's talk about the facts. If I'm wrong, show me I'm wrong. But you got to come up and, and, and tell us how you can prove all this stuff. I just wanted to comment on that because it's pretty diabolical. We have a question, LDS doctor Adam and Eve have to sin to procreate. Why is this important? Well, the LDS believe that Adam and Eve were commanded two things uh, multiply, replenish the earth, and don't eat of that tree. And, but unless they had knowledge, tree of knowledge, of good and evil. Unless they understood that knowledge, they, would have the inabi- they wouldn't have the ability to procreate. They wouldn't know how the parts worked. They wouldn't know how they fit. Now, of course, the animals in the kingdom were all around them. Adam named them, and they were multiplying and creating. And I can tell you, if a man can see that, he can figure out a way he can get involved too, especially with Eve running around naked. So, And if Adam didn't have any idea of how these things worked, he could have, because he had direct communication with God, said, Father, he told me to multiply. How do I do that? And the Father would have told him, and the Adam would like, go, yes! <laughs> and then the Garden of Eden would have been populated by billions of children, and God's world of peace and joy and no pain and no suffering and evil would have existed. It's the same idea we have of heaven. It would have been heaven on earth. This would have been a place. But no. Adam had to do it his own way. The LDS say, listen, Adam would have sat there for a century saying, I don't know what it means. Multiply, replace the earth. Let's sin, Eve, and maybe we'll find out. uh, Eve got the gig. Eve knew that they needed to find out how to do things, so she partook of the fruit in the Mormon thing and came to Adam and said, listen, Unless you understand how this is going to happen, uh, we're going to be separated because I've eaten the fruit and broken the commandment. You have to eat the fruit too so we can be kicked out, be together, and multiply and replenish the earth. And therefore, to Mormons, Adam and Eve fell upward. They did what God, wink, wink, wanted them to do all along. Okay? Just as a side note to that, (coughs) if Satan, who in the temple film says, they say, what are you doing in the Garden of Eden, Satan? And Satan says, I'm only doing that which has been done in other worlds. Okay, so Satan was aware of the plan of salvation that Adam and Eve were supposed to come here, sin, learn how to uh, have relations, and then uh, go and populate the earth. Well, Satan was aware of this whole plan. What would Satan do if he was truly diabolical? He would never tempt Adam and Eve to disobey. He would never want them to eat of the fruit because then all of the spirit children that Adam and Eve were gonna bring in through their sin Would stay up in heaven and God's plan would have been totally thwarted. You see, but the Mormons have him tempting Eve. Why? To fulfill God's plan, and Satan was aware of what their fall would do. It would fulfill God's plan. It makes no sense. You get it? That's one of the greatest cracks in Mormonism. They have Satan tempting Adam and Eve to do something that Satan knows is going to help God fulfill his plan. Doesn't work. All right? All right. This is Steve Smith. It says, how do you reconcile Deuteronomy 4, which talks about not adding to the things of this book, and Revelation 22:8, 8, which talks about not adding to the things of this revelation? It seems that Deuteronomy precludes anything after the Pentateuch. If not, why not? Well, I'll tell you why. The word Bible, biblios in the Greek, means what? Many books. Many books. And so what Deuteronomy is saying is don't add to this book, Deuteronomy, Okay. Don't add to Deuteronomy. And what it's saying in Revelation, which is singular, Revelation, not revelations, John is saying this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the end, in chapter 22, he says, don't add to this revelation. Okay? Revelation wasn't the last book to be uh, brought about in the Bible. Uh, First, second, and third John came after Revelation. So it didn't mean that there weren't going to be other books. It just so happens that Revelation is put at the end of the Biblios, And so it it doesn't mean don't add to this book as a whole. It means don't add to this singular revelation at the end of the book. That's how you justify that being written in Deuteronomy, and that's how you justify that being written in Revelation. Now, do we add to Scripture today? The LDS say, yes, we do. We see modern Revelation, and we say, hey, the Lord said, no more earrings and polygamy's over. Add that to the canon. (laughs) But the thing about that is, is this. Those who created the New Testament were all, first-hand witnesses of Jesus Christ. The only one who uh, you could say wasn't would be Paul, but that's not true because he went out into the Arabian desert and was taught by Christ for three years, and he also had a vision of Christ. And he was the apostle called to replace, to make it an even 12. So all the apostles were the ones who provided us with the text of the New Testament. First-hand witnesses, wrote what the Holy Spirit told them, when those first hand witnesses ended of Jesus Christ, there's no more canon necessary. Why? The Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. It, fulf- it fills believers now who believe on Jesus Christ. We have his written word. There's no more written revelation needed. Does God continue to reveal to us every day, to us individually, through people who are called prophets? They have the gift of prophecy. But it doesn't mean they're like unto Moses saying, Ah, oh, I have new commandments for you. And this one talks about golden plates. and this, That's just such a twist on what God originally planned. Okay? Uh, I can't read that because I don't have my glasses on. I'm not putting them on. Listen, finally. Uh, I'm going to close up with something that's been building for a number of years. Uh, I don't know if I have time, but... Uh, When I was LDS and stuck at home on a Saturday afternoon, I'd flip through the TV and I would stop dead on televangelists and I'd just fall over laughing my head off at what some of those guys did, and I still do. When I left Mormonism, I entered into Calvary Chapel School of Ministry, and I learned about their Christian culture, which was primarily very good. Coming here uh, for the program, I realized over a few years I was exposed exposed to other cultural expressions in the body. At one end of the valley, I watched people writhing around and shouting and speaking in tongues, claiming miracles in every corner, at another end of the valley i was visited where uh, i visited where people were sitting there like they were filled with formaldehyde and unable to move yeah. uh, i have witnessed hardcore sales pitches in churches for money you know cuz we got to have a new building we need your money you know it's just this big thing and and uh, endured hour long diatribes about the evils of harry potter and 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 i've uh, i've seen christian touring artists demand obscene amounts of money so they can do the lord's work and uh And and even watch struggling mothers in bookstores at book signings. Buy $80 uh, packages from Beth Moore that are going to save their life, you know. Uh, The word tithe and tithing is bannered around. And uh, what we call worship today, excuse me, I'm sorry. I never have said this. I've always just hated it. It bores me. I I think it can be, uh, for me, it can be ugly stuff for me. For other people now, the tongues. The speaking, the concerts, the stuff, that's fine. You have that right. I don't judge you in that in terms of your Christianity. You're going to heaven ahead of me. But for me, I've, it's, I've always been opposed to all these cultural implications that are found in modern day Christianity. So on October 2nd, we are going to launch a church at the University of Utah, and it's gonna be called CAMPUS, and it stands for Christian Anarchists Meeting to Prayerfully Understand Scripture. We don't expect it to get large or be large. We do expect some people uh, to come and attend and be very disappointed. We don't care. Uh, We have silently endured the trappings of modern Christianity and want to experience deconstructed church. Uh, Feel free to join us if you're interested. Uh, We'll tell you where it is, times, locations, things like that in the coming weeks because we're not gonna launch until October 2nd. We don't want you to join us if you are expecting to tap into another modern church experience. Uh, You're not invited to come if you're a church hopper. If you have a problem with your pastor, go to your pastor and and make it good. Don't come to another church. And uh, if you find security in dogma, don't come. Uh, Stay home if you want to be entertained. Uh, But if you're looking to learn the word of God and to have fellowship with like-minded believers of the same ilk, show up. Because we think it uh, might give you something. Now, I have never expressed some of these opinions to people until last week. And I did, and I've had a number come up and say, I have felt the same way every time I go to the, these, these churches. I mean, they do a good job and their pastors are good and things, but I just haven't felt I fit in, I've never understood it. I can't do those things, it's not right with me. If that's your case and you want to learn the word and focus on that, come join us on October 2nd at the U of U, we'll give you information of how that is. All right, next week we're gonna continue on our examination of the Book of Mormon. We love you guys, we'll see you here on Heart of the Matter.
0: Woo. I'm going to break I'm going to break my I'm going to break my rusty cage and run I'm going to break I'm going to break my going to break my rusty cage and run I'm going to break